Hello, my name is Aisha Thomas-Smith and I'm the new host of the weekly economics podcast. We are back for a new series with a shiny new format. We listen to your feedback from the listener survey and we're going to be mixing things up a bit. So, we're going to have some regulars from the New Economics Foundation every week to discuss what's going on in the world of economics right now and to bring you the bigger picture from behind the headlines, as well as our usual mix of guests from Neff and beyond. The first of our new weekly wonks is Neff economist Laurie McFarlane, who was once locked in a zoo overnight. Say hello, Laurie. Hello. Next up, we have Neff's Alice Martin, who heads up our work on housing and jobs, whose multifaceted and complex identity can't be reduced to an interesting fact. Say hello, Alice. Hi, and yeah, sorry about that. (laughs) And last but not least, we've got Neff senior economist Stephen Devlin, who has over 30 first cousins, he thinks. Say hi, Stephen. Hi. So this week, we'll be looking back on the biggest economic stories from the last seven days, going into depth on Trump's economic policies and making some predictions about what we might see in the budget on Wednesday. First up, we've got a new bit of the podcast that we're calling Headlines of the Week. What happened in economic news last week that we need to know about? Stephen, you're up first. Okay, well, a little while ago, there is this man called Bill Gates who came out and said that he thinks that we should be taxing robots because basically robots are taking people's jobs and since jobs, well, people who do jobs, pay income tax, we should also make robots pay uh, income tax. Um, So this is a bit ironic because I don't know if you know, but Bill Gates is uh, a man who founded a rather famous company called Microsoft. And that has been probably responsible for quite a lot of job losses in the past uh, through automating word processing and various other activities. So uh, it seems kind of counterproductive to his interests. Um, But it's interesting. It's a very vogue issue at the moment, the loss of jobs to automation. And I think it's kind of a serious thing to consider. We should be thinking about how we do bring in tax uh, into you know the new world of technology, but um, kind of weird for it to come from Bill Gates. Stephen, do you imagine that a, a tax on robots would be enforceable, and if so, how? Well, not really. I mean, it it kind of implies that you know we're thinking of these sort of humanoid robots that come into factories and sort of just act like humans, um, but that's not actually the main thing that's kind of making jobs disappear. I mean, it is in some way, but it, it's also just the sort of computerization and digitalization of things. So I think it would be pretty difficult to categorize what is and isn't destroying jobs. I think we probably need to take a much more holistic approach to shoring up the tax base in a, in a digitalized world. I mean, we've all seen the movies, the robots win. <laughs> uh, Alice, what's your economics headline from last week? Uh, well, Funny story, sort of, but with a, a serious undertone. Um, Uber CEO Travis Kalanick was caught on a, a video basically arguing with an Uber driver about fares. Um, so after, I think, what seemed like quite a jolly ride, um, as Travis was going to leave, the driver basically confronts him and says, why are you doing this to us? You're raising standards and, and you're dropping prices. You you know, you're, we're taking away less money and, and you're raking in money. Um, And they get into a bit of a spat on the video um, and there's some swearing. Uh, And basically, as as 
uh, Kalanick leaves the the taxi, he shouts something to the effect of, um, some people just don't like to take responsibility for their own shit. Which I think is... Um, is a bit of a rude, <laughs> rude and, and, and cheeky thing to be saying, given that um, Uber drivers actually take full responsibility for their shit, i.e. they buy their own cars, they pay for their own insurance. If they need a sick day, they cover it themselves. If they need a holiday, they cover that themselves. So a bit of an awful glimpse into uh, Travis's brain, I think. Yeah, Mr. Colonic. So what's the, uh, <laughs> what's the fallout from that being? Um, I think probably just some more bad press for Uber, basically. Um, I think he's apologised, um, maybe, on Twitter, uh, but I don't think it will go very far. Uh, I was chatting to an Uber driver last night, actually, about it, and he was saying that, basically, drivers are just having a really rough time over here as well, um, and that this kind of thing just, yeah, isn't really helpful. Okay, Laurie, headline of the week. So this news relates to the Royal Mint, who have announced quite a serious uh, radical revamp of the coins that you and I and everyone else carry in our pockets. Um, And that means that in a few weeks' time, we'll be seeing a new one-pound coin uh, that looks rather different. It's going to be 12-sided, flashy new design. Um, And uh, this is because apparently a lot of the current pound coins, the round pound coins, are easy to counterfeit, and they reckon uh, close to 5% of all one-pound coins are fake. Uh, and I guess there's a bit of urgency because the the current round pound coins are now only going to be valid for another six months, after which they will no longer become legal tender. Um, so the public are being urged to spend your round pounds as quickly as possible. So if you uh, have some at the moment, make sure they get spent, crack open any of the old piggy banks, look down the back of the sofas because uh, the time uh, is running out to get them spent. Wow. So t- talk to me about this 12-sided, because I'm imagining some kind of crazy s- spherical thing that's not going to fit in your pocket. I mean, it looks, from what I've seen, it looks quite good, uh, uh, aesthetically appealing. Not so great if you're one of the uh, uh, companies that run vending machines, which means that all of a sudden your machines no longer accept the new pound coins, which means you have to spend millions of pounds building new machines to accept them. Um, but the government's tried to get around this. They've, they've let people know about this for a number of years in order to try and phase them in. Um, but at least they don't include animal uh, products because when the Bank of England introduced the new £5 note not very long ago, uh, there's a bit of uproar because it transpired that the, the new plastic £5 note has animal product in it, which has uh, made some people not very happy. So spend your round pounds, but there's no pig in them. So everything's fine. (laughs) So the biggest news story of the year, and possibly our lives, is that Donald Trump is now President of the United States of America. Our big question today then is, what is Donald Trump planning to do with the US economy? What is Trumponomics? From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. Donald Trump has announced a lot of policies since his inauguration, from repealing Obamacare to the infamous Muslim ban. But what economic policies has he announced? Well, he's been very busy making plans. Um, not so busy getting that much done. Kellyanne, I just retweeted the best tweet. I mean, wow, what a great, smart tweet. 
But some of the key things he's he's announced are big tax cuts. He's going to give big tax cuts for rich people and for corporations. But I'm going to cut taxes big league. No American company will pay more than 15% of their business income in taxes. He wants to impose import tariffs on various goods that come from Mexico. When do we beat Mexico? And now they're beating us economically. He's planning a big cut in regulations. He uh, wants to spend a lot more money on infrastructure and a lot more money on uh, military spending. We're also putting in a massive budget request for our beloved military. I mean, I suppose the other thing is he's just got a, a policy of sort of personal bullying and intimidation for companies that don't really do things that um, he wants them to, which actually I think is, seems to be quite effective in some ways sometimes. There, there are companies that are just sort of rolling over at the moment and and, and um, acquiescing in what he wants them to do, but I'm not sure how much longer he can get away with that. I will be the greatest jobs president that God ever created. Those are some of the main things. Uh, yeah, not much of it implemented. Probably a lot of it's going to be quite difficult to get through Congress, um, but it'll be quite radical if he does. I think, um, as Stephen said, the, uh, in some ways, Trump's plans are the sort of classic uh, Republican plan of uh, tax cuts for the wealthy in business uh, and kind of trickle-down economics that it will hope that it will feed down. Um, the other interesting thing is you mentioned increase in spending, in particular on military, and just last week, uh, Trump announced uh, a huge increase in military spending. Uh, the US already spends uh, more on the military than the next 10 countries combined. Uh, and just to put in perspective the increase that he's talking about, he's talking about an increase of about 50 to $60 billion, uh, which is actually the same amount that of the entire UK military budget that he's looking to increase. Um, so it's your classic kind of uh, military Keynesian uh, a proposal where he's going to cut spending on key services but massively increase spending uh, on the military. Yeah, but it's quite ironic because, I mean, these are the bits that he's probably least likely to get through Congress. Maybe military spending is going to get through Congress, but the infrastructure spending, which everyone's sort of touting as the one sort of progressive thing that that Trump is doing, that's the kind of the one thing that we're like, oh, there's going to be growth perhaps, there's going to be uh, businesses are going to be happy about that, maybe this is going to be the one good thing he does. That's probably the main thing he's not going to be able to get through Congress. So in the end, we might end up with just quite a classic sort of Reagan-esque fiscal policy. I think it really depends on uh, what infrastructure we're talking about, because Trump, he's talked about this trillion dollar mil um, sorry, infrastructure plan. It's not clear, for example, his wall with Mexico is included in that because that's obviously going to be a pretty hefty uh, expenditure. And it's also not clear whether he's talking about actually using public money to do that or uh, there's some talk where he's actually just talking about giving tax breaks to private companies in order to try and finance this. It's a very expensive way of doing it. We are going to Washington, D.C. and we are going to drain the swamp. If one of Trump's main campaign promises was that he was going to drain the swamp, do you think that he's he's done that? What did what did he mean by that? And and how's it going? Is he are people happy? 
Well, it's interesting because during the campaign, Donald Trump had championed himself as the only candidate really willing to stand up to special interests. And he chastised both Hillary Clinton and uh, the Republican uh, rival Ted Cruz for being in bed with Wall Street and heavily criticised them both for their ties to financial interests. And, uh, and as you said, he's promised to drain the swamp of these special interests and really make quite a radical break. Um, since then, though, the, the way that things have turned out have been rather different. He has uh, handpicked uh, a number of the most senior posts to uh, very, very senior Wall Street insiders. So just to give some examples, his Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, uh, is former partner of Goldman Sachs and a hedge fund manager. Gary Cohn, who is the new uh, chief economic advisor, was previously president of Goldman Sachs and has now been brought in. Uh, and as part of the deal for leaving Goldman Sachs, he was given a $300 million uh, severance pay payoff. Similarly, Steve Bannon, the, uh, the, the chief strategist, was also at Goldman Sachs. So really, um, despite saying to drain the swamp, he seems to have uh, polluted the swamp uh, further by bringing in uh, lots of Wall Street interests. Cyber, 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 cyber. I have a son. He's 10 years old. He has computers. He is so good with these computers. It's unbelievable. But it's not just businesses on Wall Street who are on board with Trump. We've seen bosses from innovative new tech companies like Tesla and Uber join Trump's advisory council. So what does Trump mean for businesses of the future? Well, interestingly, actually, the... The CEO of Uber, who we were talking about earlier, has actually stepped down already from that advisory council. Um, I think he basically realised that maybe Trump wasn't the best brand after all. I think um, I think they're going to have a difficult job in basically being seen to be working with him and then being open to their kind of globalised model uh, where they expect kind of high labour supply coming from um, lots of different countries and also consumers across the world. Um, so I think there's going to be a real difficult balancing act there. Just on the, uh, the tech companies uh, issue, one of the more interesting things uh, that I've seen discussed in the, with Trump is every time that Trump tweets, particularly uh, in reference to Mexico, uh, billions of dollars get wiped off the value of Mexican companies and also the because of the decline in the Mexican peso. Uh, and there has been some talk from some people in Mexico that it would actually make financial sense for them to actually buy Twitter uh, and delete Donald Trump's account because it wipes <laughs> off every time he tweets. It wipes off so much money from the Mexican economy. I think the other interesting thing about the interaction between the tech industry and Donald Trump is that with stuff like, um, you know, the Uber campaign and Google, the weird thing that we're starting to see is actually that the tech industry is starting to become almost like the political opposition to Donald Trump, which is kind of worrying in a lot of ways in that, you know, they're these sort of, they are at the end of the day business elites as well and they have their own agenda and that actually they have a great deal of economic power. So one of Trump's early executive orders has the aim of removing job-killing regulations. So what's he planning to do and how is this going to affect the US economy? Yeah, I love talking about this because not many people know about it and it's just so crazy, you almost won't believe it. So he has signed an executive order that requires government agencies, when they want to bring in a new regulation, they have to repeal two other regulations. 
which is complete madness. So if if you imagine the situation, imagine you're the you know environmental protection agency or something. If you want to bring in a new rule that you know uh, regulates uh, coal power stations or something, you have to get rid of a rule that requires rivers to be clean and an, and another rule that requires your air to be clean or something like that. I mean, it's just totally unrelated and arbitrary. I mean, wh- why would there be any connection between these two things? Uh, but what people don't realise is he's learnt this trick from the UK. We have the same thing here, actually, uh, and it's even worse here. We actually have one in, three out. Uh, and what that means in the UK is when the government regulates um, uh, in a way that is going to cost a business one pound, they have to get rid of other regulations that uh, cost businesses three pounds. So there's almost like a sort of automatic shredder for regulations in the UK. Whenever we want to do anything, we have to get rid of other stuff. Like the only direction for regulation and standards is downwards in the UK. Um, And Trump has copied that from us. So take from that what you will. Um, But it's also quite worrying in the context of um, signing a trade agreement with the US. So the big thing around trade agreements these days is that they're not so much about tariffs and they're more about um, the sort of regulatory standards and the differences between regulatory standards in the two countries that are signing the agreement. So if we sign an agreement with the US, we are going to have to probably harmonise some of our regulatory standards. And what that means is we have to either push them up to the same level or we have to push them down to the same level. But with the one in two out rules and the one in three out rules, that means by definition, the only way we can go is down, basically. Um, So they've sort of contrived the situation where both countries are going to be sort of plowing onwards, um, ripping through regulations and standards. And at the same time, we have a trade agreement that's sort of, uh, you know, encouraging each other to to match up the uh, the commitments each other have made. So it's quite a scary situation for uh, some of the, the, you know, the protections and laws that we we sort of hold dear here. Hmm. So with the the burgeoning, uh, blossoming romance between Trump and Theresa May, how do you think that that deregulation would play out in in the trade agreement that we're going to that we're going to aim for? So. I think there's going to be a few areas of particular concern. I think one thing that a lot of people are talking about is agriculture. So the US, well, agriculture and food standards more generally. Um, the US uh, has much lower standards uh, on, on agriculture. They, uh, you know, they have GM foods that can go without labels. Um, they use sort of nasty chemicals to clean chicken carcasses and horrible things like that. Um, a lot of a lot of things that, that people in the UK sort of instinctively find kind of gross, I think. Um, and that's one of the main things that has been cited for uh, sort of deletion in the UK. So I think that's a major thing. I mean, who knows what else? The May government has committed to um, keeping up labour standards. That's one of her... Uh, sorry, Theresa May's Brexit negotiating principles. So it's hard to know exactly what she means by that. I mean, we can take her at her word, but I think we're going to have to see, you know, is that a substantive commitment? You know, are they going to find other ways to get rid of that? Because at the end of the day, labour costs uh, and labour regulations are a big component of of business costs. So that is going to be an important way uh, if the strategy is to sort of increase UK competitiveness, uh, you know, by any means necessary. So I think those are some of the concerning things. Food is is an obvious one, and we need to think about probably labour standards as well. 
Yeah, I mean, just just to pick up on that, labour does cost a lot to businesses, but obviously if, if wages go down, that costs a lot for the economy. So there, there are kind of questions, I think, that um, both leaders are having to grapple with here as more and more people are, are becoming... Um, self-employed or in casual employment anyway like how much further can we go in terms of deregulating the you know the, the kind of standards that, that workers have to protect them interestingly in in the states um people are kind of anticipating uh, a, a surge over there in, in self-employment but not necessarily in the same way that we've seen it here where we have lots of people kind of in, in full self-employment um for example you know uber drivers or or deliveroo um, careers or often people in the construction world um, who are kind of doing jobs but they have to take on the self-employed status but in the states people are predicting the rise because of Trump's tax policies which will uh, basically bring down the, the taxes for self-employed people so people who are earning high wages at the moment are likely to basically start fiddling the books a bit and becoming self-employed so that they can get out of paying taxes. One of the other areas I think which is quite concerning is um, what's happened with financial regulation. And so it's perhaps not surprising given that Trump has stuffed his cabinet full of uh, Goldman Sachs uh, uh, hotshots. Um, it's not surprising that he has uh, quickly got to work in dismantling a lot of the financial regulation that was brought in after the financial crisis. And in particular, what's worrying, he has ordered a review of the Dodd-Frank Act, which was uh, introduced in 2010. And this was to try and rein in some of the worst excesses of, um, of Wall Street. Um, and he's quickly set his team on to uh, reviewing and dismantling it, saying quite bluntly that it's because his friends tell him uh, that it's harming their business. And he's actually openly said that. Um, and I think this does uh, clearly have potential implications for uh, worrying implications over here uh, when we see Theresa May uh, uh, sort of holding hands with Trump, uh, looking for sort of friends. And uh, the worry is that Theresa May follows in that direction. But is Trump's review of Dodd-Frank, I mean, is it is it largely symbolic? Is he going to be able to get that through Congress? Well, that's it's yet to be determined, to be honest. I mean, I think there is a chance that some things may uh, may well get through because you know he does have uh, Republicans do have quite uh, a lot of power both in Congress and the Senate, um, and the worry is that that's just the tip of the iceberg. Though he's also shown quite a bit of hostility towards a lot of the international regulations that were brought in after the financial crisis. He said he doesn't think that the Federal Reserve, the central bank, uh, has been acting in U.S. interests in doing all these deals. Uh, and he wants to review everything that's been in place to put America first uh, and sort of doing away with what he calls, uh, you know, job job killing regulation, uh, which clearly is, is ludicrous. It's not the case. The, the, what has been job killing is the lack of regulation, which has led to the financial crisis, which has led to a large unemployment. Uh, so it's a really deep concern. I now call Mr. Chancellor of the Exchequer. <laughs> So, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Philip Hammond, will be getting his little red suitcase out again for Budget Day next Wednesday. Hello. When George Osborne was doing this, he had a catchphrase, long-term economic plan. A long-term economic plan, long-term economic plan, long-term plan, long-term economic plan. When Philip Hammond drops the budget next week, I've got two questions. What will he be wearing and what will his catchphrase be? Laurie? What will he be wearing? I suspect he'll be wearing um, a nice 
blue suit and pink shirt and blue tie. I'm going to be quite specific on this. <laughs> uh, I've thought about it quite hard. Um, in terms of what his catchphrase, well, as you said, George Osborne's was long-term economic plan. I think in Philip Hammond's case, uh, it's more of a short-term economic fudge. I think the government at the moment doesn't have any kind of plan going forward. Uh, it doesn't know what Britain's relationship with the rest of the world is going to be, and he's muddling through taking every day as it comes. Nice. So we've got a blue suit and short-term fudge, something like that. Alice, and I'm writing this down. Um, well, I think he's going to wear a gorgeous three-piece um, <laughs> suit with maybe, yeah, basically a little waistcoat under under the jacket. Um, quite nice. traditional, quite classic. Um, in terms of his catchphrase, I think it's going to have to be something about just about managing, you know, the jams. Mm. So probably something like, I'm Philip Hammond and I'm just about managing to make it look like I've got a plan uh, for the for the year ahead. Nice, but he'll look good when he does it. He Great. will. Stephen. Okay, I have absolutely no idea what he's going to wear. I don't particularly care, but I think <laughs> uh, let's go for a risky guess and say he's going to wear some sort of hat. Ooh, <laughs> that's really risky. It's a wild card. Yeah, maybe like a bowler hat or, <laughs> I don't know. A fedora. <laughs> Baseball <Happen>. cap. <laughs> um... And what's his what's his uh, catchphrase? So I think his catchphrase has to be something like, like, um, look over there, because <laughs> <laughs> he's trying he's trying to distract everyone basically. I think you've done it. <laughs> I think you've nailed it. That's it. It would be great if he came out and just shouted that at the dispatch box. <laughs> he's sort of trying to distract people basically. So. He's kind of patching things up. He's saying we're doing good things. We've we've got the the debts kind of going up a bit. Uh, we're going to deal with people's concerns around business rates. We're probably going to announce some money for social care. Maybe you know things are looking up. That's going to be their story. Um, and the whole point of that is to sort of distract from this really sort of horrific, urgent, alarm bell ringing situation where Brexit's about to happen. Uh, our economy, even before we voted to leave the EU, was in some seriously stretchy uh, condition. Stretchy? I mean, sketchy. <laughs> <laughs> it's really stretchy really economy. And so, you know, there, there are really big problems coming up and, and we're not seeing any real solutions that are speaking to the problems that people are having. And so he's going to say, look over there, we're doing something small and interesting on the side. Uh, forget mm. about this big thing that's happening right in the middle. So the house is on fire and he's painting the door. Alice. Yeah, I mean, I, I just want to build on that. Um, you know, it's it's fun having a joke about this stuff and, and, and laughing at, at what he might be wearing. But there are really serious issues going on at the moment. And, you know, there have been moments when the government have talked the talk, like with the housing crisis, and they've acknowledged the scale of the problem. Um, but they're holding back from really doing anything or saying anything um, that's going to make any substantial change. Um, so I predict next week they might not even talk um, much about housing because they're behind on their own targets. Um they're really not having much impact there and, and the housing crisis continues. 
Yeah, and just to, I think as well, another important thing is um, bearing in mind we're looking at now another effectively lost decade in living standards, uh, um, building on the fact that over the past 10 years, real wages have fallen by about 10%. Uh, as things stand just now with inflation set to rise, etc., we're looking at another extensive period of, uh, of, of negative real wage growth, coupled with the fact that we're in a real... Uh, crisis in, for example, the NHS, uh, social care. Um, I think it's absolutely right that we should be drawing attention to these issues that need addressed now and not sort of window dressing and saying how great things are, which I think is what we've been hearing so far from the Chancellor. So we'll see on Wednesday what the budget will look like and what Philip Hammond will look like. I'm voting Manolo Blahnik. <laughs> so thanks, Laurie, Alice and Stephen. We'll be back with more of the weekly economics podcast at the same time next week. If you've got a question for an economist, you can tweet us. We are at Neff on Twitter. The Weekly Economics Podcast is produced by Hugh Jordan and James Shield and brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I've been Aisha Thomas-Smith and you've been great. <laughs> <laughs>